from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And from San Francisco, California, I'm Frank Ling. And this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, joined by Neil Bascom discussing the new cool. And we'll talk about the technology and policy behind nuclear science. So stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000, coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. the Grok Science Show. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Frank Ling. Hey, 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 it's uh, Frank Ling and uh, you're alive. Well, actually, uh, due to a number of circumstances, I'm actually in uh, San Francisco, California right now. Wow, you got out just in time. <laughs> Guess I'm pretty lucky. <laughs> so luckily you weren't in Japan when earthquake hit. Uh, do you know people back there, everyone okay that you know? All my family is accounted for. No serious injuries. There's been a lot of stuff falling off the shelves. My friends and colleagues, they're, they're all okay. I think one of them reported that their cousin was missing for a few days, but they just got in touch, so he's really thrilled about that. But right now, you know, they're trying to have some sense of normality, but the aftershocks are still pretty strong. So as you know, there was an earthquake last Friday around 3 o'clock uh, Japan time, measuring, which is now a 9.0 on the Richter scale. And that, that is actually a massive earthquake, much larger than what Japan has experienced even in recent years. It's about 200 times larger than the Kobe earthquake, but because it was, you know, in the sea, the damage was substantially less. So, you know, following that, there's been a lot of aftershocks and, of course, the big tsunami, which has led to the, the situation we're seeing with the nuclear power plants. So, you know, the thing about these nuclear power plants is that they're supposed to operate or withstand a 9.0 or even a 10.0 earthquake, but because they hit a double whammy, the earthquake and the tsunami, I think that's why we're seeing this, this condition, the situation right now. And I guess now all the nuclear power damage from the reactors going on. Yeah, so I think it's up to level six or one below that, which is, you know, what Chernobyl was. Huh. I, I think the latest news shows that they are leaking some radiation to the clouds. So, uh, unfortunately, I think the Japanese government has not exactly been very forthcoming, but I, I think we can expect that from many different governments, partly because we don't want to panic, but, you know, we really don't know what's going on. But it is getting very serious from what I understand. But I think as far as countries go, they're probably the most prepared, pretty much any country, for an earthquake. They're paranoid about it. I mean, <laughs> you know, partly because they had gone through the atomic bomb experience. They have a very certain apprehension about nuclear power, of course, they had the growing economy and they need energy for that. And then we, we also have the issues of these utility companies basically dictating certain government policies so that they could build these plants with less than the ideal amount of safety. So one thing I found out, and this is actually from the New York Times, was that the design of this plant is actually based on the GE design that they had for the Three Mile Island incident. <laughs> And, and the interesting thing was that this design was actually, they recommended doing away with it back in 1972 when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission determined that the design was just too vulnerable and it was not safe at all. It's just that the specs were flawed to begin with. Yeah. And it actually it means a lot to the U.S. because most nuclear plants are based on the GE design. And so something like this 
could happen again if, if we're not prepared for it. Because I hear India was actually supposed to be a, a big buyer of Japanese-made reactors. I think Toshiba is one of the big parties in that. You know, wh whatever they have right now is much more advanced than the yeah, nuclear reactor we have at Fukushima, which is over 40 years old. So, you know, whatever they have would have presumably been safer. But because of the public fear, I think there's going to be very little support for new nuclear power plants anywhere. Well, so, but uh, you're okay, everybody else is okay that you know, and it's uh, way to go back. Yeah, so I was actually supposed to go back on Monday. The airline, Japan Airlines, has let me delay my return as long as I want. So, of course, very generous of them. What I hear is that most of the flights going into Japan are pretty much empty. Oh, Mike, we're certainly glad to have you back in the States. Hey, <laughs> I enjoy it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I missed the clown chowder in San Francisco. <laughs> You'd have to stop by Chicago for the deep dish. Oh, okay, gotta get there. <laughs> all right, let's do that. All right, uh, glad you're safe. All right. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Neil Bascom will join us to discuss the new cool. So stay tuned. Back to the Grox Science Show. Well, those who love science, technology, education, and math realize how cool it is, but in an increasingly scientific and technologically driven world, these fields of endeavor are almost essential. Inspiring the next generation of scientists and engineers will be critical for the future. In his book, The New Cool, Neil Bascom describes how one such visionary teacher, his first robotics team, and the ultimate battle of smarts are uh, doing just that. And uh, Mr. Bascom, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grox Science Show. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program. This is really a, a very cool book, The New Cool. You talk about uh, this teacher and his robotics team competing in the first uh, robotics uh, battle. I'm curious, how were you drawn to the story? I was initially drawn to the story through my nephew, who was uh, an awkward kid in high school, didn't really enjoy sports that much, was very smart, and really found his home on a first robotics team. And it gave him a confidence and a sense of direction, not only in high school, but also uh, now into college and into his career. And so I wanted to learn more about it and thought I'd write an article about uh, first and went up to the kickoff that they have every year in January uh, where they announce the new game for the season. And I was just blown away by the enthusiasm, the intensity, and how much of an impact this was having on thousands of lives, students and mentors. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about FIRST, uh, its history, and uh, what is actually involved here. Sure. FIRST was started by the inventor Dean Kamen, who's perhaps infamously known as the inventor of the Segway, but has done a number of other inventions, hundreds of patents, and is an extraordinary engineer and technologist. And his idea for FIRST, which is an acronym for the inspiration and recognition of science and technology, was that he needed to 
push culture to understand that smarts is what we should be celebrating, not movie stars or uh, rock stars. And his idea was to create a competition, a sport, that would celebrate people who endeavor to create these robots and have them battle it out in competition. And so he designed first around that idea. How many groups are usually involved in the competition and how, how do schools get involved? It's been growing exponentially. So it started 20 years ago with 32 teams playing in these robot matches. Now, at the high school level, up to 2,000 teams across the country and across the world. And then he also has, now there's kind of like a, like any sport, it has a feeder system. So it has kids as young as five, six, participating in first Lego League. There's 20,000 teams of those individuals, tens of thousands of kids. So it's growing and still a bit of a sub- subculture, but I think it's, it's moving towards the mainstream. I see. And, and is really the goal then to get all the kids excited about uh, robotics, engineering, science? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the stated goals. And as you, you know, you'll see it in the book, you find a lot of these students who never really were exposed to science and technology in such a dynamic way find it that they want to pursue careers of that into college as much as my nephew did. But I think the other point is just, and I, and I make this pretty clear, is that this is a story not just about science and technology, the story about education overall, about how you see with Amir Abishair as sort of the lead character, how he's engaging kids in, in project-based interactive learning and how much they're taking away from that versus the sort of rote learning, lecture, study the textbook kind of learning that is, that is prevalent across uh, the country. It really brings up the question of how we educate uh, not only in science, but just sort of overall and more active learning. Absolutely. I mean, it's active in, in so many ways. I mean, I think the two, the two lead ways are the, the mentor-student relationship. Instead of it being a lecturer or a teacher on a, on a dais expounding at length for an hour, you actually have a mirror working side-by-side side with these students to, to build this robot. There are no instructions. There's a kit of parts, but it's kind of just a starting point. And you see them working together and kids, in many ways, leading their own education. And I think the other point is this idea of peer-to-peer education, which Mir is a big proponent as well. And you see it in the book where he has one student or a group of students learn how to use one of the design softwares, for instance. And then those students go on to teach the rest of the 24 kids on the team that exact design software. So not only are those other students learning, but the ones teaching it are gaining an understanding and a proficiency that far exceeds what they otherwise would have had. So in a way, it's all almost mimicking the kind of real-world situation in which uh, these problems are solved. Absolutely. And, you know, and in many ways, the, the, the competition mimics the real world in so many different uh, avenues. I mean, you have these students who are, like any engineering project, are given, you know, a certain amount of time to, to finish something. They're given not enough tools, not enough money. They have to work together, and they have to lead it, lead their own charge. And, you know, they're learning very real-world experiences at a young age that I think will hold them in good stead. I mean, one mentor that I interviewed in Detroit, I followed the 2009 season when Detroit and the car industry was in its absolute worst. And I asked him, you know, are you worried about these kids? Are you worried about these kids and their future? And he said, you know, it's the kids that aren't on my team that I'm worried about. These ones hear what they're learning, they'll be fine. It does pay to have good mentors and book focuses and on Amir Abu Shair. What if you tell me a little bit about him? He's a teacher who's the first recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. 
Yes, he won it this year, and it was a nice, nice turn of luck for, for him and for me because uh, <laughs> I followed him in the year before that. And he's just, you know, I mean, at a very base level, he's just an incredible educator. I mean, you know, if he only sat up there at the front of the classroom and lectured, he would be a dynamic and incredible teacher. But focused and why I focused on him and the story was that he is trying to start this revolution in education at his school, converting pretty much his whole academy, his whole engineering academy, into this sort of project-based lessons like the robotics, which is integrated within his curriculum. And then he's also creating an academy within that for teachers to come to to learn about how to do it and how to take it to their own schools. And so it's a small local story, an incredible story about this underdog team, but then has import, I think, for the country overall. And, of course, the students which make up his team, there's a number of them. I wonder if uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the diverse backgrounds that they all have. Another reason I, I chose this team, you know, is because it was a, a bit of a ragtag group of kids. You know, it's not on this team of 31 students, not just all what are called gearheads and programmers. I mean, you have students who were interested in theater. You had students who were surfers. You had students who were on the basketball, football team, and the pep squad, musicians, all coming together, all rookies, all on this robotics team, and sort of going for the gold uh, in that rookie season. And it was incredible just to watch them to engage science and technology on a, on a very visceral level, as simple as, you know, grinding away a gear and how engaged they were at it. So what was the uh, particular task that was in place in the 2009 season? The game of the 2009 season was this fascinating mix of robot tag, I would call it, and <laughs> basketball, where the robots would have to chase around other robots with baskets on their back, basically, and shoot the balls into them. And, you know, they, they score points, obviously, when the balls go into the basket. And so, you know, they're presented with this challenge at the start of the, the season, and they have to figure out, you know, what kind of robot will most efficiently and most effectively score points. So they could have designed basically a garbage dump truck to dump balls in, or they, the one they chose was to create a kind of turreted shooter, a cannon, as it were, that would propel balls at an extremely fast rate. They were real underdogs in, in this competition. I mean, as you mentioned, there are a lot of other places, Detroit, other schools, which are almost technology schools per se, and they're really expected to win. Yes, they were uh, building this robot out of a you know one-room shop with a little closet for where they had stuffed as many machines and milling machines and drill presses as they possibly could, could gather. And they're competing against teams in Detroit and elsewhere where they're building out a manufacturing plant and or uh, engineering labs within uh, universities. And so it was fascinating to sort of watch this underdog team whose goal at the very beginning of the season was to create the most effective and beautiful robot of all 2,000 teams, and they ended up doing it. It's really impressive. Yeah, it was, it was fun, and it's, it's a very inspiring story. I mean, I, you know, just from a reading point of view, yes, you, you get lots of lessons about education and the rest, but I, I hope people take away you know, a good feeling after reading it. Uh, I mean, it's almost in the vein of classic sports uh, stories. In a, uh, it has that feel of competition and then triumph. I mean, I didn't think, think that it would be. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, when I started, I was, I was a little concerned about how I was going to tell this story. Of course, wanted to focus on a team and tell, tell their story. But I, 
but it, as I wrote it, as I finished it, I began to find that, yeah, it was very, you're exactly right, it was very much a sports story. I mean, it's, it starts with, you know, the training, uh, which is for them building the robot, and then, you know, the, the tragedies of, of losing in competitions, and then the triumphs, and, you know, the excitement level and stakes that are play here are every bit as much as compelling, I thought, you know, even being there watching, you know, I, I found myself wrapped up into, you know, they're winning and losing, losing all journalistic integrity, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it does have great personalities in it. Uh, what do you think is the, really the impression you're getting about science education in the country compared, for example, with the rest of the world? I mean, there's certain, obviously the concern is there. I mean, if you just solely look at test scores in the United States compared to other countries, were something in the middling to uh, less than middling. And Dean Kamen, the founder of FIRST, you know, this is his concern. This is why he started FIRST, is to try to encourage the culture of America to celebrate students and teachers who are interested and are passionate and, and work intensely hard at, at learning about science and technology and then moving on to create careers. And, I mean, I, I would say without any, any bit of doubt in, in my mind that these students who are participating in this, even some of the kids on, on the team that I followed, will be the next generation of people who create the Googles or the Facebooks or the Ciscos or the Microsofts of the world. And so I do believe fundamentally that first, I think, is in 2,000 high schools in the country, about 10% of the high schools, and that if we really want to make a big move forward, there has to be support for programs like this in every high school in the country. Not FIRST necessarily, but like FIRST or there are other organizations similar. Mm. In the time that uh, FIRST has been around, I guess you mentioned that there's been this enormous growth. Uh, do you think that that also echoes, I guess, an increased, uh, a renewed interest in science education? Yes, I mean, I think, it, I, I think there is a renewed interest in science education. Just, I mean, as, as you started the show, I mean, your point is exactly right that, you know, the world is, becoming ruled by science and technology. And I think it's becoming clear to people that educating our students uh, to be prepared for that is, is critical. I think FIRST is helping that. I think there's a ton of work still to be done. And I hope that folks like this, like, like mine, or, or uh, educators like Amir and people like Dean will help push, push us in that direction. How's Amir's team uh, doing this year? And uh, what about the uh, students that were part of the uh, previous team? Uh, how, how are they doing? Well, the students on, on the team that I followed, they're doing, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still in touch with Amir very closely and then with a handful of students. They're all doing well. I think he com converted several to pursue uh, science and engineering in college. And then his present team, as, as always, they're working round the clock to get their robot ready for their next competition and, and hopefully to get to Atlanta. I mean, Amir is ceaseless, so I imagine they'll get there. I guess we have no doubts about that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, well, we do have just a few more minutes. I'm very curious if you just have some final words regarding uh, your book, uh, The New Cool. I would venture to say that, you know, this is a sports story, and I, I hope that readers will not, you know, I mean, there are some people who have emailed me and, and called and said, you know, this sounds interesting, but, you know, am I going to be overwhelmed by this science and technology? And I think just from a narrative point of view, I think you're right. That this is a sports story. I think that you can read it. If only just for that, I think it's, it's compelling. And I think the other point is just about the title, which, you know, the new cool, and I'm constantly saying cool now, but, but I think it's, it's one of the larger points of the book, and I think it's something that Amir is, pushes uh, pretty strongly, 
and that's the cool is what you make it, and that these students have worked extremely hard. Uh, they're passionate about it. They've they've worked together and become a team, and many of them were worried at the start of the season. You know, is this geeky, nerdy? You know, am I on this team? And at the very end, you know, one student said, you know, I have worked hard, I have worked passionately, and I don't care what anyone else says, you know, this is cool. And I think that if more students can, can have an experience similar to that, I think we'd be in a much better place. Uh, I certainly think you're right. The book is certainly cool, the, the story is definitely cool, and the people in it are definitely cool, and uh, we certainly think you're cool for being on our show, so <laughs> thank you very much. And it's cool to be here. <laughs> All right, the new book is called The New Cool, and uh, Mr. Vascom, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. I appreciate it. Thanks. And you were just listening to Neil Bascom discussing The New Cool. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. Because there's a million things to be. You know that there are And if you want to live high, live high And if you want to live low, live low Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are You can do what you want The opportunities are And if you find a new way you can do it today You can make it all true And you can make it undo You see Ah, it's easy Ah, you only need to know Well, if you want to sing out, sing out And if you want to be free, be free Cause there's a million things to be You know that there are 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 All right, it's time to play our game. It's called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Robot or Human? For the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are um, humans or, in fact, robots in disguise, and maybe a little reason why. Are you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Oh, here we go. Person number one, robot or human, Charlie Sheen. Decidedly human. <laughs> too, too, too faulted to be otherwise. All the human failings there. Exactly. Every single one of them, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, number two is the golfer Tiger Woods. Robots. I mean, because his whole endeavor is to be uh, uh, perfection, perfection of swing uh, and all the rest. <laughs> uh, number three, uh, biologist Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. I would have to say human. I think he's able to connect things in different ways that I think robots today are, aren't quite able to do. All right. Uh, number four, it's the talk show host Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. I wish he was a robot. <laughs> Shut him off. Keeps going though for some reason. Yes, he is. He's, he's certainly working on autonomous at this point. <laughs> okay, finally, number five. It's uh, the new mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Oh, definitely robot. That man is a machine. I would not want to go up against him. 
<laughs> in a dark alley or a light one. <laughs> He's like the Terminator incarnate there. <laughs> exactly. Give uh, Schwarzenegger a run for his money, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, well, Mr. Bascom, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, uh, playing our game, and again talking about your book, uh, The New Cool. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. All right, take care. All right, it's time for uh, this week's Question of the Week, and uh, joining us our good friend, the Tokyo Kid. Uh, Tokyo, how you doing? Ah, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Charles D. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be on the show again. <laughs> well, we're glad that uh, you're on the safe side. of. The- Hopefully everything is going well. Actually, not so well. Uh, it's a real catastrophe going on in uh, island of Japan. I think uh, part of the problem might be the Fukushima nuclear reactor. Ah, exactly. That's uh, correct. Uh, it's uh, we are seeing a failure of the cooling system of the nuclear reactor. My goodness. So, well, I guess everyone wants to know uh, for this week's question: What kind of technology does the Fukushima nuclear reactor use? Ah, very, very good question. It, they use a boiling water reactor, and uh, it is the second most common type of cooling system used in. Uh, nuclear fission uh, power plants like the one we see in uh, Fukushima and uh, also in the Three Mile Island. Doesn't sound very good. Problematic because uh, many reactors in the U.S. also use the same technology, so uh, we must be uh, very cautious. See that uh, it cools down. Ah, thank you, uh, Dr. Lee. Our prayers to Japan and uh, everyone around the world. Stay safe. Okay. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.